Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio, where each week we talk to a musician, artist, author, or other creative Mississippian working in the arts across the state. I'm your host, Melody Moody Thordis, Director of Grants at the Mississippi Arts Commission. On today's show, I'm speaking with painter, printmaker, and photographer H.C. Porter. So thank you so much for joining us. Melody! Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. You know, I'm always reminded how fortunate we are to have a community with such active interest and support of the arts. And this show definitely sort of embodies all of that. So thank you for inviting me. Of course, it's such a privilege to talk to to artists of all kinds and people working in the arts um, each week. And uh, we get to highlight from all different parts of the state and all types of art. So for those who may not be familiar with your work, who may be listening, can you give us a description um, in general? Of course, we'll talk more details later um, of the work you do and I guess the kind of artist that you are and see yourself as. Well, first, I will say I am a Jacksonian. So a native Mississippian, and I've always been considered, I consider myself a Mississippi artist, telling stories of my home state that I love very much. Um, I guess my work, you could say, it's kind of narrative and storytelling, just about day-to-day trials and the tribulations, and I love to sort of rejoice in our simple accomplishments. You know, whether it's people hanging laundry or shelling peas or leaning on a fence or playing basketball in a back lot. It's just, I paint what I see. And for me, that inspiration has always been Mississippi heritage and culture. It's taken me all over the state and all over the nation telling our story. Well, you're certainly... A huge cultural ambassador um, for Mississippi and, and getting getting the word out there in a new, interesting way. And your work is so attention-grabbing in and of itself. Um, I feel like it really draws people in and ask, starts asking those questions, you know, about this place that you're capturing. Um, tell me a little bit more about, uh, you know, growing up and... And when what were kind of those early experiences in the arts um, or even just experiences in general that, like you said, you saw and you wanted to reflect in some way? Well, you know, it's interesting. The, my process starts as a photographer, right? So I take my photograph first and I silkscreen the work onto paper and I come back with lots of colorful layers of acrylic paint and Prismacolor pencil Think Andy Warhol, but with Southern roots, right? So you've got this bright, bold, high contrast with lots of layers of color. And that first initial exposure to photography came at a very early age. Uh, I was a student at Madison Ridgeland Academy, so I had art, fortunately, in this classroom for years. But when I was about 
14, my mom had been given a camera, just a really early, like Olympus manual camera for Christmas. And she promptly turned to me and said, hey, Chrissy, this is not really something that I want to pursue here. So then she sent me off to um, Millsaps College to take some sort of adult ed type photography classes. I fell in love with it, the dark room, the whole process. I became my uh, yearbook annual photographer at school. I saved my money to get my dark room in place. And all of that was happening on the backdrop of also being exposed to wonderful Mississippi photographer Eudora Welty and her images and just so seeing, as you said, seeing the place. So once I had camera in hand, um, I was also, as I said, exposed to my art classes. So I was involved in the scholastic arts competitions in high school and later went on and received a scholastic art competition um, as a portfolio winner, went to the University of Alabama on an art scholarship. So that um, was my first step into becoming really what I had always wanted to be, and that was a professional artist. Well, this is interesting. This is kind of a backstory. So I was studying painting and photography at the University of Alabama, Roll Tide, right? I had been headed to Ole Miss, but Alabama offered me the scholarship. So um, studying painting. I had a painting teacher. He was old school, New York, Silver Spoon, you know, born. Um, he was sort of known for his not very uh, warm techniques. So he would come over, grab the piece you were working on, rip it in half, and throw it off the balcony of the art department. We had a four-story uh, complex. And so many, many young ladies were in tears after art class. But he would grab me and take me into his personal studio, sit me on a stool, and I would watch him paint. He was an abstract, early, um, sort of just loose, and he would pour paint, and he would march all over it with his Nikes and put this these, uh, texture all over it. And, and in his attempt just to bring a looser technique to my work, so... When you look at my painting now, it is, there are layers of looseness, right, on top of this very refined photographic image. But under that is that background of having seen this, his name was Alvin Sella, having seen this great painter in his process. So it definitely inspired me and influenced my work. But the, my first exposure to silkscreen was also in college. I never took a printmaking class, but I had a sorority blind date with this young man, and he worked for a printmaker in his part-time. And he said, oh, my gosh, you need to come meet my boss. Same was Rick Rush. And two weeks later, I was also employed by Rick Rush being a silkscreen uh, young master printer, and that was my initial exposure to it. So I later ran his studio after I graduated from college, and I made, uh, I think, $2.75 an hour. I had to choose between milk and bread and finally said, you know what, I think I can do this better if I'm living at home. 
I came back to Mississippi and uh, started my studio on um, Euclid Avenue in my grandmother's basement. I think the I think it was the ability to combine my photography love with my painting love. So by using photo silkscreen, which is what I do, I create a, that high contrast image, and I've been doing it so long. I really, literally, my first screens were made from uh, different exposures in a dark room of line film, and I would cut out the sections of eyes and hands and environment that I wanted in the final piece and tape it all together with scotch tape. So I might have eight or ten different film exposures and then expose my uh, screen from that using a light source and an emulsion on my screen. And then I would have open screen. I would pour a black ink on, squeegee it through onto the paper, and then come back with the layers of paint. But again, that has gone the way of the horse and buggy. I mean, that's you don't do that anymore. It's all done on the computer and... So I've had to pivot to the, the uh, dealing with my work and how could I do all that I do in Photoshop. So I've kind of come up with a unique process that I consider mine, and um, it's interesting. So that's that silkscreen was just the bridge to bring my painting and my love of photography. Um, you describe this um, kind of sh sharp contrast, right? So you've got these bright colors, just describing this for our listeners, bright, bright, bright colors, as I mentioned, that really draw you in. But then you typically have your figure in the forefront in black and white. And by black and white, right? Not a photography black and white that people are imagining, but a stark white and a stark black. And it sounds like that really comes from a mixture of the camera and the printmaking. So is that something that has been, since you learned the printmaking process and since you started combining these three, is this high contrast white and black image has been a part of your work ever since? Or how did you come to that? You know, it's interesting when, as you say, if people are not familiar with my work, for years, 30 years, I would say, having started on Millsaps Avenue uh, in the predominantly uh, African-American black community behind Millsaps College, I started documenting my environment. I had a, um, we haven't really touched on this yet, but I had a, a uh, community arts grant and had a project called Avenue for Art. And I worked with about 50 kids every summer um, exposing eight to 12 year olds to the arts and we would do mask making and found object printmaking and all these wonderful things but I started documenting my relationship with these kids and their families and then it ultimately led me into the neighborhood so when you see my work you're going to say wow look that's it's a black community midtown community in Mississippi and Jackson so why are the features left as a stark black and white. I've never come back in and felt that it was necessary to put any sort of a, a tint uh, on my pieces. So if I'm explaining this in a way that people can visualize it, that question that you just asked me about the stark contrast of just the black and white is to reflect the process so that you know that the silk screen is there.
so I've never felt like I needed to come back in. And of, we also haven't touched on this either, but when my work pivots again from the Midtown neighborhood to uh, Backyards and Beyond to my Hurricane Katrina project on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, camera in hand, I headed down and had never really photographed other communities, never photographed the Vietnamese community, never photographed the Hispanic community or the white community. And with my process, I was like, wow, how, what are you going to, you know, are you going to be able to distinguish the difference between all these cultures? And of course you can. So um, I think where my work will grow is going to be in just the stories that I have to tell. So I focus so much on Mississippi that I'm now looking for more national stories to tell. Hi, I'm Melody Moody Thordis, and you're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. To hear all our conversations with creative Mississippians, be sure to subscribe to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast on your favorite podcasting app. contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think "Eh, maybe i'll try it myself some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes you can do it if you want to find out how to do those things listen to fix it 101 podcast everywhere this is an mpb think radio podcast Each week on the Arts Hour, representatives from the Mississippi Arts Commission speak with different creative Mississippians. Today, I'm speaking with artist H.C. Porter. And before the break, we were talking about um, different experiences and pivots um, that you have experienced. And so let's let's travel back a little bit in time and talk about your time in the Millsaps Avenue Arts District and the experiences that you gleaned there and the work you did. And then we'll talk about kind of what came next. Well, thank you, Melody. And I tell you what, the the pivot that I made initially from my grandmother's basement on Euclid Avenue, about 200 feet from uh, Bellhaven's art building now, uh, was made um, in 1988. So this, we're talking history here, (laughs) and I was so privileged to be, to find myself on kind of in that burgeoning community of Millsaps Avenue, the Arts District with Andy Young, and at the time Elizabeth Robinson and Kay Holloway and Gretchen Hain, and um, we would sort of have cookouts during lunch in the back of the studio. I was at the 161 building, and it had been an old print printer's building. It was about, wow, 3,000 square feet. It was wonderful. And uh, we would just talk about where we would see our lives and how could we envision making a living as an artist and encourage one another. And um, just through those years, I was there for 20 years, I would say, until um, Hurricane Katrina sort of uprooted my life and not the way that you would imagine, not that I was affected personally uh, by the uh, storm because I was living in Jackson at the time, but just by the event. And that's a project called Backyards and Beyond, 
Mississippians and their stories, and it premiered in 2008. But as we're all familiar with the experience on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, Katrina slammed our state in August 2005. I was headed to a show in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and that would have been probably right as everything was about to break down in New Orleans, but it had already wiped out the Mississippi coast. And in Lancaster, people were coming to an arts festival, and I was there as a Mississippian with my work, and people were pulling themselves away from the television. If you could remember, we were all sort of watching what was now happening in New Orleans, and people said, you know, this is, this is in your backyard. Why aren't you home? Your work speaks so well of Mississippi. You need to go home. Well, after three days of hearing that, and um, I, the next weekend I had to be in Washington, D.C. for a show, and I remember specifically a woman came in. She happened to be a lawyer in D.C., and she said, I don't know what you have to do, but you need to go home and allow your work to tell the story of what is happening in Mississippi. And at that point, I was just, it was like a preacher being called to preach, you know, it was that drive of, okay, God, I hear you. I'm going to, obviously, this is a story that I'm going to be involved with. And at that point, you couldn't even get in touch with anybody on the coast. And things were still just, um, you know, in such disarray, those early, that well, the entire year. But initially, and I called a friend at the time who was a congressman, and I said, what do I need to do to get on the coast? And I was given a letter that it gave me access, because at the time there was a you know razor wire and everything else. So um, my partner, Carol Sessoms, and I drove to the coast with a small cassette recorder, because with the idea that for the first time with my work, I would pair oral histories with my images which is something I had always wanted to do and regretted after I would spend a couple of hours photographing someone and they would tell these great stories as Mississippians love to do to share stories and talk. And I would think, oh my goodness, if I had only been able to record that. Well, this was history that needed an audio and a, a visual. So I spent the next year on the Gulf Coast, all 90 miles photographed about 9,000 images, collected oral histories, uh, raising awareness of what happened on Mississippi's Gulf Coast versus what had happened in with New Orleans. I'm, I'm sure you I'm sure you just met so many different people. Yeah, tell me about some of those experiences, some of the ones that stick with you. You have to just recognize that, I mean, again, New Orleans had its own separate experience. And my goal was to allow Mississippians to tell their story, what was happening to us as a community, as a state. And then not only storm stories, but who we are as Mississippians, our culture and heritage, and what was allowing us to get through this devastation, you know? And it, a lot of it was that we knew we weren't alone in the process, you know, because of our strong faith and our neighbors and our families, we knew that we would get through it. And we knew that um, just our lives would 
would come back together and that we were so dedicated because we love the community and love the state. And we, as they say, pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and really set to work. The first stop I made was in Purlington, Mississippi, on the line between Louisiana and Mississippi and on the banks of the Pearl River down south. And we were behind crews with chainsaws cutting their way in. This was about two weeks right after Katrina had hit. And when we got in to this one small community, the families were already there. They hadn't waited for the state to bring the chainsaws in. They had cut their own way in. They were going to figure out what was happening at their homes. Of course, it was just de pure devastation and the smell and the muck. And unless you experienced it, it's really, it's really difficult to, um, to describe it. But that was the first step in telling that story that would last an entire year. Um, you know, we had tremendous support from the state, from the Gulf Coast, Mississippi Power were large sponsors that really recognized that this would be a story that through art could be told for years and years, unlike just news stories that would tell the story and then quickly move on. But this was something that there were 81 paintings that I created. So it was really an interesting process to figure out how, as a young artist or, you know, with that many resources, how this would all come together. But as I said, it was like, it it was just something that I felt called to do. And each piece of the puzzle sort of came together uh, one step at a time. So through those 81 portraits, we had collectors that I had reached out to. And they raised their hand and said, we want to help tell this story. So those paintings are spread out around 38 different states. Um, each collector um, committed to a painting before, just from a photograph, we set up sort of a lottery process. So it's funny, because I'm not always just an artist. I also have to think about, okay, how am I going to make a living as an artist too, right? So how are you going to fund these projects? And um, so the different collectors were so supportive, but I, I did 20 paintings of four different sizes, plus one, so 81 we ended up with. But from those photographs, people had 24 hours to go in and pick which image they wanted to be theirs. As, uh, as they were the first ones to buy into the project, they got the first selection of those 20 that were in their size and price point. But each, as each of those collections sort of sold out, people at the end were still very excited about their images and the opportunity to tell the story of Mississippians. But I'm just curious if you experienced any kind of different um, stories from people at the beginning and a year later. Well, people were in shock, except as I said, we're Mississippians and we want to talk. And what we used a line, sort of a mantra for the show, and it was, there is healing in the telling and the being heard. And wow, every time I think about it, it's just very emotional for me still to um, step back into those conversations and that environment. And um, <laughs> people 
people were facing their lives in unimaginable rebirth, you know. One, um, I remember one, it looked like just everything was annihilated, just like a nuclear bomb had gone off. And, of course, later the FEMA trailers began to pop up and as Mississippians do, we're so creative with our own personal spaces, and so each separate little FEMA trailer became a little island of their own creative senses, you know. It was really fun to see, but um, all on the backdrop of how how we going to uh, find our way back from this. So um, one of the things that was included in the exhibition were photographs that along with Gretchen Hain, the photographer, a good friend and the head of the photography department at Bellhaven, we went down and photographed what was left of the floor slabs, life-size, and then in black and white had them printed so that you could stand on them and experience what people came home to in the aftermath and along with the paintings and the oral history. So it was this total immersion and um, in who we are as Mississippian in our personal spaces. So, but those floor slabs, you know, they were covered with, if, uh, if you were completely slabbed, which was what people referred to it as, or if you had a watermark, you were completely slabbed. It wasn't that it was just a gray slab often, it was layers of linoleum. So you have all this history of choices that were made through the years of the type of flooring and tiles that were splayed everywhere and the pine straw that had floated in from the islands and odds and ends objects and sand and coins and I remember seeing even a, a, something from an Episcopal church like the what they swing with the incense and toolboxes just all kinds of crazy things and um, to see that life size when you're standing on it I think that was an part a powerful part of the exhibition so and all that you can find still at the waveland museum there's a hurricane museum called ground zero hurricane museum waveland mississippi had only one surviving building like 3500 structures or something and it was a brick old school and it's been turned into a museum uh, telling the story of the area and they have a room that's dedicated, thankfully, uh, from the help of Mississippi Power with oh, eight or so of the paintings from the show, the oral histories, and the floor slabs are on loan there, too. Hi, I'm Melody Moody Thordis, and you're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. To hear all our conversations with creative Mississippians, be sure to subscribe to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart devices podcasting platform.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Melody Moody-Thordis with the Mississippi Arts Commission. Now I want to talk about your your blues project. You have a you have a book documenting this project called Blues at Home, Mississippi's Living Blue Legends. So let's talk a little bit about um, the inspiration for this project. I, I read that some of it came from driving down historic uh, Highway 61. Uh, so tell me what, what brought you to wanting to document blues artists in Mississippi. Well, it's interesting. I had gone to Delta State University to install the Katrina project, and I had recently moved to Vicksburg from Jackson, set up my studio in my home and gallery there in uh, downtown Vicksburg. But So I was driving back, and honestly, I drove through Rolling Fork, and there was a community of house trailers, and all of a sudden, it was just this swell inside me, and I heard this voice. It was kind of like, Chris, you know, calling me, and I knew there were stories there to tell, but I didn't know exactly how to go about telling them, and I called my then gallery director, Lachlan Fields, who's a wonderful Southern Studies major and writer um, in Mississippi, and she said, I said, Lachlan, I want to tell the story of this trailer park in Rolling Fork. And she said, you know what? No, you don't. Let's talk about the history of the blues that surround that community with living legends today. And that was in 2010. So I was like, okay, great. I'd photographed the Delta through the years, but I'd never specifically focused on blues musician. So uh, it's called Blues at Home, and that's because I wanted it to be not just images of blues performances out and about or festivals or whatever, but at home environments of blues artists. And that was something Lachlan had uh, been a Southern Studies major at Ole Miss and had worked with Living Blues Magazine. So she set about contacting these musicians. We worked with uh, Scott Beretta at Ole Miss, Blue Scholars, to point us in the right direction. I think initially we had 91 of the blues artists professionally working in Mississippi and still alive, of course, because I have to photograph them and interview them. And uh, I had done 81 paintings for the Katrina Project, and I thought, there's no way. Well, that almost killed me. So we narrowed it down, and Again, a very odd number, 31 paintings in this series. So Lachlan put together, um, which is also very interesting to try to contact blues musicians in Mississippi. It's like, you know, grabbing a moving pinball with bailing wire. If you can do it, good luck, you know, because these guys travel internationally. They may not even be well known in Mississippi, but they're known in you know, Norway or something. So these guys are not just sitting around waiting for me to come knocking on the door as a Mississippi artist to photograph and interview them. But we uh, had a wonderful experience and were welcomed into these homes. Of course, um, as a native Mississippian, I think that helped in a way. But seeing these blues men in a personal home environment was just such an incredible experience for me and if 
some artists we did not photograph in their home, but someplace that was significant in their career, right? From uh, Ground Zero Blues Museum in Clarksdale uh, to the Walnut Hills, uh, Walnut Hills, Walnut Street Blues Bar in Greenville, um, just to all these little juke joints all over the state, and Club Ebony with Denise LaSalle up in Indianola, and um, again, just doing the oral histories was also an incredible opportunity to hear what these guys were saying. Honey Boy Edwards, 97 years old, I photographed him in Meridian, Mississippi, and he had been playing the night before with Big Head Todd and the Monsters. And I thought, where in the world? He was staying at a Holiday Inn Express. Where am I going to photograph him in Mississippi? I mean, in Meridian, and of course, Weidman's, the oldest restaurant in the state. I said, okay, well, we'll go there. And it was lunchtime, 12 o'clock. We're right in the front uh, entry. And I had his manager was there and we were photographing and this other gentleman walked in up to the manager and he said, hey, what are y'all doing? You know, oh, she's photographing. This is Honey Boy Edwards. And he said, oh, my son's in a band. And of course, the manager was like, yeah, everybody's son is in a band. And the guy graciously said, well, what band is it? And the gentleman said, Wilco. It's like, okay, <laughs> that's a band. And yes, you know, so, but that was just you never knew where, where you were going to end up and where you were going to find yourself photographing these incredible, incredibly gracious, entertaining blues men. Um, so that was a year, 2011, and unfortunately of my 31 gentlemen and gentlewomen, I've lost 10, have passed away. So I'm very fortunate that I was able to uh, meet and experience these personalities and they're purebred entertainers right even though they're singing the blues they are entertainers to the core of course Bobby Rush and we we're so pleased that he would be in the project and <clears throat> uh, so supportive and each each of the uh, paintings again were individually sponsored by collectors all over the state and the show came together in 2014 at Ole Miss at the University Museum uh, there. They had the premiere opening for the show and the state helped sponsor as many of the blues musicians in the project as we could to be at the opening, which was really exciting because you could go in, experience their painting and their oral histories and actually experience the living blues. You know, it, it's interesting. There was a, a quote, I'll share this, of by a well-known curator, but he said, we make art to hold on to what we love and what we are about to lose. So I've looked at my, the themes of my work, and it's, you know, to date it's been loss, loss, you know, celebrating community, but we've had so much loss that this also, my work also documents. But um, we're very fortunate that we finally recognize that blues is our natural resource you know, and that we can celebrate the blues in the state of Mississippi. It's just really exciting to have been a part of that. And as we've continued to grow that uh, industry, basically, and put these guys on the map. And like I said, we worked with different blues musicians that some were well-known, like Bobby Rush, B.B. King, 
the nasal sal, but many were not, like the LC Elmer that you mentioned before and T-Model Ford. And I went all over the state, too. And I didn't want it just to be the Delta Blues. I wanted to focus on blues from different parts of Mississippi. So that was exciting. Get up into Pontotoc and uh, Terry Harmonica Bean. And, again, um, it just it was an exciting ride to get to experience each of these individuals. We, we first walked in with T-Model sipping Jack Daniels through the photo shoot, offering me swigs. And his wife at the time, Stella, looked at me and she said, you know, I think I've seen you dance. I was like, I was like what? And, of course, it was the uh, old blues club over there on President's Street in Jackson that um, that was such a hot spot that I used to love. And I was like, oh, Lordy. Guys okay. in a whole new way. She was right. Um, and girls, and I just can't imagine the stories that exactly. didn't even make the book. Yep. You know, didn't even yep. make the project. Because yep. yeah, I just so. imagine you sitting there with, with these, with these legends. I know it was really incredible. And I know again, I'm not the first artist to go pounding on all these doors and looking to tell these stories. But I really felt uh, privileged and honored to be a native Mississippian too. And collecting the oral histories, that was what was so important about it, to get to ask all these questions of, you know, here you are, I'm representing the state, but here they are representing the state in, in um, all over the world with their work, you know, and how did it feel for them to be able to be Missis to represent Mississippi and Israel and wherever they go. I mean, it was really an exciting project, and as I talked about it in the early stages of it, people would get so excited about the opportunity to to live with the work and help tell this story. And So Blues at Home later went on. It went to the B.B. King Museum. It was hosted there in Indianola. It went to the National Blues Museum in St. Louis when they opened, and that was really exciting. And again, each of these musicians were with their paintings, able to tell their own personal stories, and then we would do a blues jam sort of an afterglow, and had just a raucous time. I remember Jimbo Mathis just was just grinning ear to ear, this is the best thing. When we did the one uh, after the Ole Miss, uh, we went to the Lamar Lounge, and it was, it was quite an evening. But So that's how, once the show went to St. Louis, uh, another year later, it went to Maryland Hall in Annapolis, Maryland. That's That was sort of the pivot was, I was invited up here to bring the show. And through that, I was also invited. It's a Maryland Hall in, in Annapolis, Maryland is an arts and cultural center. It used to be an old high school, a big brick school that houses the symphony and the opera and all this performing arts and also visual arts. They had five artists in residence studios up on the third floor, and they said, hey, you know, we love your work, and we uh, opened the show there, and Bobby Rush came, and Eden Brent, and Basta Jackson, and we did this incredible night of oral history and music, and with the opening of the exhibition of paintings, um, and I was like, well, yeah, this could be really interesting, so I applied, and even with my gallery commitments of my gallery in Vicksburg, um, uh, it was really exciting for me just to sort of take a little bit of a break and see what was happening in another part of the country. So I found myself uh, in Maryland 
representing Mississippi. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, they still consider themselves Southern, which is kind of took me a little while to get used to. It's like, uh, I don't think so. But yeah, they, they, <laughs> they called me out on that more than once. So, but it's right here. It's on the Chesapeake Bay. It's full of history, just like, um, just like Vicksburg in a historic downtown of Annapolis. And, um, 30 minutes from Washington, D.C., two hours from New York, about 40 minutes from Baltimore, and finding inspiration of art and culture and um, trying to figure out where my work is headed. You know, I'm very fortunate that I've made it financially, really, through this year, and it was with the help of the state of Mississippi and with the state, with the support of other um, collectors, and I was told at Maryland Hall we had to take, get everything that you would need for two weeks. So I was able to move out, but still residing in Annapolis, stay, and focus on, okay, how am I going to manage this, and began to continue to paint. I also create commission paintings for individuals from family photographs or you know personal images so I'll I reached out to collectors and had found a lot of support doing personal portraits and commissions which I still do but that was really a blessing and then I guess October came around and they getting pretty lean and I thought, okay, I've got all these paintings I've been continuing to create, and they were bound for shows that I would normally do, like in Denver and uh, Columbus, Ohio, and Des Moines, Iowa, all these wonderful places with these huge inner city, like uh, citywide arts festivals that I've participated in through the years to sell my work. And, of course, nobody could gather, so all these events had been canceled. And I was looking around going okay, what, where am I going to go from here? And we pivoted to an idea to do an online lottery. I had 18 pieces of work in my gallery at the time, original paintings, and I reached out and said, okay, anybody out there up for a deal, a bargain on an H.C. Porter painting? Because it is a pandemic and... Thankfully, 18 people raised their hands, and I did really literally a lottery. And I put a naming a name on uh, a number on each painting. Uh, so with 18 paintings, I had a little um, what's it called when you spin and you do the bingo? Had a little bingo cage with 18 numbers in there, and I would spin out a number and talk for about 20 seconds. This was all done on a Zoom night thing. It was really fun. And we would talk for 20, 30 seconds about that painting that was uh, coordinated with that number. And we had a big cage with everybody's name in it that had bought a lottery ticket. And we would pull their name out and then match it with that particular painting. And then move on, do another number, spin it again, and pull somebody else's name out. It was it was really fun, and it was a just an unusual way to face the the times that we were in, and it 
was very humbling to find that sort of support. And people were from all over the country that's, that, that bought into the lottery. And so pieces are spread out. And now I'm working on just new work, preparing for a show. The shows are coming back online for those of you that participated. Well, that came out to the Ridgeland Fine Arts Festival the 1st and 2nd of May. We had a great turnout. That's something that I've been involved with since the inception uh, 11 or 12 years ago, bringing 100 artists from all over the country. And we didn't know if it would happen or not, of course, with COVID, but things were on the, the right track. So people that have experienced that show, it really is exciting. We have music and artists, and that was kind of the first practice of of uh, being back in front of people and uh, talking with with and without a mask at times. So, but I am gearing up for a show in Des Moines, which is in the end of the month, so three weeks from now. So that'll be my first national show. And you know, when you pull almost two hundred thousand people into one city center, it for in the middle of a pandemic or at the tail end of a pandemic, it is a little disconcerting, but it's also exciting to have that opportunity. And to me, I mean, this is really a through line in your work and our conversation today is bringing people together to tell these stories, um, you know, in a new way and in a unique um, gathering. So I think it's uh, very apropos for you to be having uh, your national show uh, as we all start to emerge from this world. Uh, tell our listeners, if you will, um, where people can find your work, where they can learn more. Well, of course, online at hcporter.com. They can email me at hcporter at hcporter.com. And books are spread around Mississippi, from Lemuria to Barnes and Noble, I think, and Ridgeland, and uh, so they're welcome to just Google H.C. Porter and reach out, and we can answer any questions you have about work and uh, commissions and anything else that you might be interested in knowing about my uh, my past work and my future work. I'm Melody Moody Thordis, and you're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. To hear all our conversations with creative Mississippians, be sure to subscribe to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast on your favorite podcasting app. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. 